Today in Radical Personal Finance, it's live Q&A. Welcome to Radical Personal Finance, a show dedicated to providing you with the knowledge, skills, insight, and encouragement you need to live a rich and meaningful life now while building a plan for financial freedom in 10 years or less. Um, I might have to change that. It's a tough time. to uh, tough time. Uh, Who knows? Actually, you know what? Let's keep a good attitude. Let's talk about how to build financial freedom in 10 years or less, even in the midst of where we are right now. Uh, live Q&A show today. Bunch of callers on the line. It's going to be interesting. <laughs> you're new to Radical Personal Finance, welcome, welcome, welcome. Every Friday that I can arrange the technology where I can arrange to be on a stable internet connection and host a live Q&A call. Uh, every Friday that I can do that, I host a live Q&A call. Uh, these calls are open to patrons of the show, those who support the show on Patreon. If you would like to do that, go to patreon.com slash radicalpersonalfinance and sign up to support the show there. Patreon.com slash radicalpersonalfinance. I don't want to waste any time today, so we're going to begin with Justin in Chicago. Justin, welcome. How can I serve you today, sir? <laughs> Hey, Joshua. Sorry about that. No problem. You're live. I had two questions for you. Uh, so the first one is I have a family member who's currently in Costa Rica. Uh, trying was planning to come back uh, kind of, I think, tomorrow, and that's been canceled. So now uh, trying to get flights out later this week. I was just going to see if you had any thoughts on um, should she have tried to, to come home early if it's the news? Uh, do you think she should stay put and try to make accommodations there and just want to kind of get your opinion on that? Is she living in Costa Rica or is she just simply traveling in Costa Rica on a short term? She went for a one-week trip, kind of in the middle of all this. And why was the flight canceled? Was it uh, why? Why couldn't she get out? Uh, I'm not sure why the first flight was canceled. It may have been like an availability thing, or I'm not exactly sure. But the flight she was supposed to come back on was canceled. Has the airline rebooked her? Uh, yeah, she's been rescheduled to another flight. Okay. So, is there? What's the problem then? Why shouldn't she just take the flight? Uh, so I guess mainly I was curious because she's uh, recovering from uh, from illness and is in her 60s. So I was uh, thinking about just trying to avoid contact with folks. Well, there's not really an option for her. Uh, if she's if, you know, she was living in Costa Rica or if she had friends in Costa Rica, then of course she could stay in Costa Rica. But Central America, um, just like almost anywhere, is, is shut down. So she has three, three ways to get from Costa Rica to the United States. Uh, she can fly, she can drive, or she can take a um, she can take a boat. Um, she ain't going to drive. All the borders are closed. Um, Mexico U.S. border is now closed. Of course, if she's a U.S. citizen, she could get that in, in that one. But I don't know if the Mexican border is closed right now. But Honduras is closed. Uh, El Salvador is closed. Uh, Guatemala is closed. Costa Rica is closed. Um, shoot, Costa Rica would let her out. But Costa Rica is closed. Panama is closed. Um, Panama is canceling all flights, um, all international flights on Sunday. Um, so she's not generally, of course she could drive up, but too late for that. Uh, and so she, her only options are to fly or to take a boat. Uh, there's no practical boat scenario. And so I think she has no choice but to fly. So, uh, if she has been experienced, if she's been sick, if she has, if she has coronavirus or has the symptoms of it, then obviously she owes it to her fellow passengers to not fly, to get treatment until she recovers. And she can do that in Costa Rica. But if she just has a cold or something like that, then, um, have her wear uh, and acquire a mask to protect her fellow passengers to maintain distance. But I don't see any option that she has, but to get home. Um, I, w I don't see any other choice for her at this point. 
All right, awesome. Thanks so much. Any other questions before you go? I don't know. I think that'll do it for me. Okay, great. All right, we move on to, looks like, Pennsylvania. Welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Hey there, Joshua. This is Guy in Pennsylvania. Good to talk to you, sir. You too, sir. Go ahead. Uh, I, have a, I have a simple tax return question, uh, and the question is uh, where you would best suggest that I would put these funds. Uh, my wife and I have been talking about it a, for a few weeks now. We were talking about this before everything has happened with coronavirus, and, uh, and now I think this probably changes the conversation a little bit. So uh, essentially, just to kind of outline uh, where we're at, we are, uh, we're in ministry, so I'm employed at a church, and she is a freelance writer, um, very minimal. Uh, she makes about $500 a month. Um, and so I look at our income as, especially in times like these, is fairly high risk because if the community stops making income, the church stops making income, I stop making income. So um, I have a tax return coming. We are, uh, as a family, we are debt-free except for our mortgage. We have an $86,000 mortgage. And with this $7,000 tax return coming, we're married with three small children, four, two, and one. And uh, where we've been discussing is whether or not those funds should go into our emergency cash savings to beef that up, or if they get, should go towards paying off our mortgage faster or towards um, what we consider our kids' future fund, which is which is where we're saving for things like college or whatever else may come up, but it's not in a 529 or anything like that. Um, so I just kind of wanted a little bit of your guidance on what you would suggest, um, at the moment, our income is gonna, you know, gonna continue to come in. Uh, you know, I'm still working. Our church is moving online, things like that. But um, we have um, we have forty five hundred dollars in our emergency preparedness fund right now. Uh, Three thousand of that is in a money market account, and one thousand fifteen hundred of that is in fifty dollar bills in the gun safe. Um, so we have that cash on hand. So I um, just kind of wanted to feel you out for what your thoughts and what your suggestions were on, on where we should launch that money. If I were in your shoes, I would um, go to the ATM and I would withdraw the $3,500 from the money market account. I would add that in 50 and $20 bills to the money that's in my gun safe. And when I receive the $7,000 tax refund, I would uh, physically, I would take that to the bank and I would turn it into physical currency. Um, I have, uh, I hope that that's overreacting. I hope that that is, um, unnecessary, but at this point in time, my concern grows day by day and I don't see, um, except unless we have some miracle treatment that proves to be effective. For example, in the last couple of days, there's a lot of excitement about, you know, chloroquine and, and, and other treatments. And I think that's great. If, if some miracle treatment comes out in the next few days, um, I will be thrilled with that, but barring that, um, barring that, uh, I see uh, no reason not to do what I've just told. Just what I've said. That's what I would do. So your recommendation is to up my cash cash on hand to around ten thousand um, dollars, and and it had had we had we not been in this scenario, would you suggest any differently? 
I've listened to a lot of your episodes yeah. where you're suggesting more had cash we, on hand than I have. Had we not been in this scenario, would I have suggested differently? Probably a little bit, um, but uh, I would have been more. I would have thought about the other options. I would have worked it through. I would have considered, you know, the the benefits and the drawbacks, etc. And I probably would have arrived at, at, at a similar conclusion. Um, if you had a total emergency savings of $12,000, I'd be nervous about all of that $12,000 under normal situations, you know, no, no, no global pandemic. I'd be a little nervous about all of that $12,000 being um, in physical cash because that puts you at risk of, of a security risk. If your safe is broken into, if you have a home fire, um, it's just, it's too risky to have all your money in cash in that scenario. If that represents all of your savings, in addition, it, it's a risk for just simply the administrative complexity of paying bills. Uh, it's very valuable to have digital emergency funds that can be quickly put in a checking account that you can make an electronic transfer, et cetera. And mm -hmm. so I would have probably still steered you towards saving it just in emergency funds, not a college account, not paying extra on your mortgage. Cause I'd rather you have $12,000 uh, being, you know, the father of, of three children than, than, than $5,000. And so I probably still would have steered you in that direction. And of course, in normal times, I would have said, you know, spend some of the money, right? There's no reason um, if, if perhaps there's something that you've been waiting for and maybe an extra two thousand dollars spent that's that's reasonable um but in the current scenario um in the current scenario i would do it as i said i would i would while you're waiting on that tax refund check i would go to the bank i would um, make some atm distributions and i would take out the money that was in my money market account and turn it into physical currency and then when i received the tax refund check i would also turn that into physical currency there's no downside risk to that other than the risk of loss so i would diversify it um you know put some in your gun safe and bury some in the backyard and or put some at your mom's house or, or you know something like that so that so that um it's not all exposed to the risk of loss, not all exposed to a house fire, et cetera. Um, but um, I think that's where we are. And I think that that, um, I think that that move at this point in time is, is clearly justified. Okay. Okay. I appreciate that. And then, and then kind of the same thing, if we get that, uh, which it looks like they're going to pass um, cash to every American household, um, kind of handle that in the same way you'd suggest, or maybe you do a little bit of digital, beyond that i don't mind you need some digital money just to pay bills right so if you still have income yeah. and whatnot that's fine yeah. um and um i i don't want to i'm trying to figure out how to clearly convey my concern which grows day by day yeah. um I have just prior to this call, I've just spent an hour sitting and talking to my wife, talking through all the reasons why I'm wrong, all the reasons why I'm overreacting. And the conclusion was that I can't find it. And uh, when I conclude this Q&A call, I'm, I, I have a significant amount of cash and I'm going to the bank to withdraw more. Um, so um, I hate that. I hate that we're there, but um, I'm concerned that within the next few days, those kinds of things will start to be more, uh, more, uh, apparent and you need to be early. So if I'm overreacting, I yeah. see, a, I, I don't see much of a cost to you. If I'm overreacting, I don't have any cost to me if I'm overreacting. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, so yeah, that's, yeah, as, that's as clearly as I can prevent, yeah. 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 I appreciate that. Cause they're trying to prevent a run on the bank. Of course, of course they are. But the reason they're trying to prevent it is because there's, there's more significant danger right now than there has ever been. And, um, again, I, I <laughs> 
I'm giving all these disclaimers because I am uncomfortable um, publicly acknowledging that this is um, this, these are my current concerns. It makes me seem very weird, and I don't like that. But these are my concerns. And so, if you if you go to the bank early and you arrange distribution of physical currency, you can possibly get your hands on physical currency. Um, but if you wait until um, things are are more difficult then you there's a good chance they don't and so what i have heard from many listeners is first of all it's just you know it's it's flat out difficult to get your hands on physical currency in today's world there's been an incredible war on cash over the last number of years um, and uh, although i've never done a standalone episode on that i have all the material i've tested myself to see if that's actually true because i used to think that was a conspiracy theory and oh there's not a war on cash and I, cash and i used to take it lightly at this point i'm convinced that um it's real, it's true, and I've proved it for myself. And then, so it's it's hard under normal circumstances to get cash out of the bank. And and what I am hearing increasingly is that banks are just just like you go through when you face an emergency, right? There there are, are a number of different phases to it, and and you can see this with regard to you know the toilet paper crisis and whatnot right now. So the first phase is that there's a reason for concern. If you move before there's a reason for concern, you can stockpile as much of anything as you want. And so the secret is always to move before there's a reason for concern. Um, six months ago, if you were saying, if you were stockpiling the necessary goods and you wanted to stockpile toilet paper, you could go to Costco, you could get two or three carts, and you could get as much toilet paper as you wanted. It was cheap, it was easy, and nobody would look at you other than, like, I wonder why that guy's getting so much toilet paper, but nobody would nobody would take a picture of you and post it online for public uh, excoriation. That was what you could do six months ago. <clears throat> now, if you went back in, in December and January, when we first started hearing news of a viral, potential viral outbreak, it was early, it, we were seeing news, it had a whistleblower that started to bring it, people were paying attention. If you understood the potential contagion of a global viral pandemic, you could go in January and you could buy toilet paper and you could get three carts worth and there was no big deal. You didn't harm anybody else. Everything was entirely fine. There was no downside to that whatsoever. In February, it started to get questionable. But if you waited until March mm -hmm. um, and then you went and did it, now as far as I'm concerned, you're engaging in something that is hurting other people. And this is like the difference between the word stockpiling yeah. versus hoarding. I don't like the use yeah. of the word hoarding um, the way that it's usually used. I, I'm very, I don't like it at all because what happens is that I'm not a hoarder if I went six months ago and purchased uh, a year's supply of toilet paper. I'm simply stockpiling. No one else is hurt. There's plenty of slack in the supply line. Um, that's just a simple choice. I'm stockpiling. Now, what, when, then they start using the word hoarding and they say, well, you're hoarding because now you're taking things and that's making it unavailable to other people. And I, I believe that you're entirely justified in doing that, but that that's not, that's not um, a good expression of love for your neighbor. Uh, I, don't want to, I don't want to take valuable resources in a difficult time uh, and, and away from people who need them more than I do. And so I would not go, you know, if I was going to make an order for masks, uh, <clears throat> 
you know, six months ago, I could order a thousand masks and just simply have that available for me. Um, and then I didn't hurt anybody. In fact, now I would be in a position to give charity because now I could take, I, if I bought a thousand masks, obviously I'm, I'm being a little bit hyperbolic with these numbers, but if I bought a thousand masks, now I could easily take three or four or 500 of them and I could take them to my local uh, hospital. I could take them and, and, and donate them and really be helpful. And uh, my stockpiling allowed me to be charitable during a time when that charity is really needed. And so that's just good that's just good sense. Now, I don't believe that it's a good practice or 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 an ethical moral practice to hoard during times of shortages. That's not love for neighbor. Uh, and so um so this is not a time to go out and and to hoard hoard those uh, those those resources. But there's a major difference between stockpiling and hoarding. So where are we financially? Why am I concerned about physical currency? Well, if we continue on the current path, then um next week and the week after, we're going to start to see um we're going to start to see public concern about banks. Uh we're going to start to see public concerns about a lot of stuff in the financial supply. And this is the most complex supply chain in the world where you've got the biggest people involved. You've got a, the supply chain of the Federal Reserve um, controlling the actual supply of money in the economy. You've got the big consumers of money, of individuals, of corporations, of, 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 uh, of governments, et cetera. And on a global basis, this supply chain is now being is now being tested, and so um, what? What's what are the stages that that people go through? Well, in 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 physical products like toilet paper, um, normally what would happen is as demand rises, then the price would rise, and that price would start to adjust the supply. But of course, in the United States and in most um, most countries around the world, there are what are known as price gouging laws, which are supposed to keep the prices from changing in a situation like that. So instead of the price changing to reflect the increase in demand, what happens is the the, the stores sell the product out very quickly, and, uh, and then they start to have shortages. Then in order to deal with those shortages in a way that doesn't alienate their customers, which is the first thing, that stores should not change prices massively because it alienates their customers, and also in a way that follows the anti-price gouging laws, they impose rationing. And that's the next step. So when you start to see rationing, you're a little bit late. But when you see rationing, there's probably still time for you to go out and to get your supplies because the supply is starting to be filled in. Um, you know, the, the, the warehouses are shipping out more toilet paper. You can go to multiple different stores. You can get a couple things. Again, we've got an ethical problem there that I think we should be cautious of. There's no reason to cause unnecessary shortages. But practically speaking, if you need more toilet paper, you can go and get it when you're in that period of rationing. So um, that period of rationing is a very important sign that, hey, something's going on. Now, that period of rationing can be short term. It can change. Uh, and so you want to say, why is this being rationed and, and what's actually going to happen? So with cash, what I am seeing is, first of all, cash has been a tightly controlled market for a long time. It's a very tightly uh, controlled market, and there's a lot of rationing involved. You cannot generally go on just about any day to your bank 
and ask for large amounts of cash. You have to put an order in and they have to you know, need a day or two to satisfy it. The amount of physical currency that's available is absolutely tiny compared to the amount of, of, of currency that's in circulation. So now what you're seeing is you're seeing more and more stress and more and more strain go onto the banks. And so banks are starting to ration their services. First, I've received multiple reports from listeners who shared with me directly that banks are limiting withdrawals to things $3,000. Uh, that's a frequent number that I've heard from multiple listeners that, that they're limited in with in cash withdrawals to three thousand um, dollars. That's not a lot of money. That's really not a lot of money, and so um, that's concerning because that's in addition to uh, in addition to other um, other rationing mechanisms such as um, just as uh, uh, you think about. Uh, Mechanisms like ATM distribution limits at $400 and $300, et cetera. Um, now, even if you go in and you have $10,000 in your account, the banks are limiting you. In addition, banks are rationing um, access to their services. Many banks are closing down their lobbies and they're they're leading to you have to do business with them in the drive-thru, which makes all the sense in the world given a, a viral uh, outbreak. It makes all the sense in the world. Um, but um, I'm also concerned now about even just the access to money, physical money. And so um, that rationing is a major warning sign to say what's going to happen in the future. Now, the supply chains are still pumping in money. So every single night, the banks are starting to are, are trying to refill their vaults. Um, the Federal Reserve is getting digital money out. There's currency that's flowing around to try to meet the demand. But there's but the, it, it, it's possible that that it, that that gets worse, and so as the news continues to, as more and more people start to understand where we are, and as more and more people start to understand the financial concern, it's as these start things start to hit publicly, hit the public awareness, then it it could affect it. And what what happens is you're not dealing with when you're dealing with markets, you're dealing with people and their individual behaviors, and so the the thing that causes the panic is not necessarily the actual results it's not it's not necessarily the 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 actual outcome this is why you've seen people arguing about well the coronavirus is just a flu well in my mind it's rather obvious that it's not just a flu i don't understand how people can 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 still believe that uh it was one thing to say that when you had data out of china that you couldn't couldn't be sure of but at the moment i don't see how you say that but the problem is not that it's just a flu there is the medical problem and then there's the perception of the medical problem there's the actual issue and then there's the human psychology and the panic that ensues. And so financially, you have exactly the same thing. So what are people who are managing the finances trying to do? They're trying to solve the actual problem, and then they're trying to manage perception. Because the the danger is that there is mass panic. And when there's mass panic, um, then, then all of a sudden, everything gets out of whack. And so there's the problem, which people can argue about the problem, but then there's the reaction to the problem, which is in and of itself a problem. That's why people are always, you know, medical advisors, even me, I'm trying to balance, okay? Let me speak into the subject, but also manage the human psychology. Now, thankfully, in my case, I can speak without, I'm not a government agent. I don't have, you know, responsibility to that. I just have responsibility to my listeners to to, to give them the best ideas that I have. But the, the at at the moment, financially speaking, over the coming weeks, we're in very very tricky waters. And what's going to happen is they're flooding the market with money and that money is going to be digital money. That money is going to be physical money. But in a contagion of panic, that human psychology can lead to shortages, can lead to major problems. And that's the kind of thing that can lead to 
to bank collapse. That's the kind of thing that can lead to um, freezes. That's the kind of thing that can lead to all kinds of of awful um, price control laws, currency control laws, all the stuff that just makes a, a financial panic awful. And so that is the fear that is being discussed right now in um, – that's the fear that's being discussed right now in in every corner of the financial universe. How do we avoid this? Now, I'm hopeful that it'll be able to be avoided, and so I don't want to be the cause of panic, but um, I also don't want my family to be without toilet paper. And so when you see something, I think you have to say something, and, and that's what I'm doing here. So that's the background uh, to, to that, is that as I watch this develop, this is the next uh, one of the next big potential events that is going to make things more and more difficult. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, so based on, so you'd recommend I need to kind of step that cash out. They're only going to give me so much anyway, so I kind of have to step it out. Right, right. Um, what I, yeah, what I would do, um, get, thankfully, $3,000 is a very doable amount. You can go to your bank. You can get a distribution. You can call them and ask them. If you haven't, one of the things I always recommend and have for years is that you should always have high uh, ATM limits on your cards. Uh, this has become more difficult in recent years. For example, with my bank for many years, and this is back to the war on cash. We're for, with my bank for many years, I was able to institute a standing order for all of my debit cards that I could, uh, that where where my ATM, my daily ATM distribution limit was, I think fifty five hundred dollars, and I had to do it in writing. I would give them a written request, but I had on all of my debit cards fifty five hundred dollar daily ATM distribution limits, and so I could go to an ATM and I could sit there, and the ATM would the ATM has a limit, and then your bank has a limit for ATM distributions. But I could go to the ATM, I could sit there and put in my PIN number. You know, ten. Let's say it's four hundred dollars. I could put in my PIN number thirteen times and get out five thousand dollars from the ATM without without my bank shutting me down. Then, with multiple accounts, um, I could do that with multiple cards and multiple accounts. And then I could do that with multiple um, on multiple days. And so. I always had it set up so that if I needed, you know, all of a sudden I look around and I need cash, whether it's to go and buy an RV uh, because somebody's selling one or buy a boat or whether it's I need cash because I'm worried about getting access to cash. I always had it set up so that I could go and I could just from an ATM at 10 o'clock at night, I could go and I could get uh, $20,000 out because if I have multiple debit cards with high limits set on those, then I could go to multiple ATMs and I could go get $20,000 out of the bank. Well, what happened is I think a year or two ago, I... I, uh, I lost uh, my debit card and I got a new debit card. And I then I tried one time to go get money out of the bank and I couldn't get a lot of money out of the bank. And that was really frustrating. And so I called them and I said, what's going on? I said, um, and oh, and sorry, I knew from previous experience when I had lost previous debit cards that whenever I got a new debit card, I had to, inst I had to reinstitute that same policy. I had a written authorization with the bank, but I had to call them and say, um, I had to call them and say, uh, will you please go ahead and, and reference my written authorization that's on file and give me the permanent high ATM limit on this card? So then what I found out with the new card is that they would no longer honor that. And the bank had made a policy change that now um, I was limited to what you know whatever the stupid, I don't know, $500 or $600 standard thing. But I could still contact them on occasion to, to request a higher ATM distribution limit. And so um, that was just a sign. And I, I said, this is one of the most valuable things in the world to me. What are you doing? And they just wouldn't listen to me. And so 
Um, I said, ah, this is getting worse and worse. Now, every bank is different, uh, right? There, there's a big difference between the big monster mega banks and modest sized banks and local credit unions, et cetera. Uh, but I have watched, you know, year after year, I've watched this get even harder. And so um, I, I, I lost the chain of my, I lost the question I was answering yeah. when I was responding to you. But just, oh, the point was simply that $3,000, you should be able to get that out of the ATM. Um, that's doable. Go to a few ATMs, uh, request a, a temporary ATM distribution limit if you do that, or just go to the bank and see if they give you the cash. You don't have a problem. The person who has the problem is the guy who's got a couple hundred thousand dollars and he wants to say, you know, I'd like to pull out 30000 or 50000 or 100000 and put it aside just in case. Um, that's where things are starting to get tricky. So I don't, I, I don't think uh, okay. we're, we're right there, but that's going to be the next thing. And so I'm watching that very carefully over the next couple of weeks and looking for information, but that's my advice. My wife and I have been, since uh, right around October, we've been slowly prepping, slowly getting food stores and things like that in the basement. We've always been working on emergency funds, and we've been debt-free for our entire marriage since 2012, and we, we take all this very seriously. And my wife, you know, I, I'm in, I, I'm, uh, I'm taking your, your radical preparedness course, and um, my wife you know, she thinks that's all a good thing, and but it's been kind of it's been kind of neat to see this kind of go on because I think it's it's almost uh, it, it's almost it's, a, it's God's timing is amazing. It's almost prophetic that you're doing this right now that you have been doing this because you know all of this has been has been theory in our household as we've discussed a lot of what you're talking about, and uh, and now here we are. I said, you know, I wish this happened six months later. We'd have been so much more prepared for this. And so my my wife actually just this morning, she just in a in a stockpiling uh, mentality, not a hoarding mentality. She just got back from the from the store and she she got extra of everything so that we can not not have to leave for a few weeks if we don't have to. And she she, she said, I'm so glad you're taking that. She's she's totally on board now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you go to the grocery store, it's a little bit eerie. I was, I was walking through all and it's quiet, it's empty, the shelves are empty, and, uh, and somebody's cell phone started playing the Titanic. Well, thank you but, for taking uh, that course. And, I, and even, oh, I cut you off. Forgive me. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I really appreciate the help. And I was just, uh, I just had a, just a follow-up thought of, uh, you know, if I do all this cash stuff, then I can, um, and as long as my income continues, I can just continue my regular plan of yeah. saving for kids' future, saving to pay off mortgage and all exactly. that. And I can stay the course. Exactly. Don't have to alter those goals. Okay. Exactly. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, and thank you for taking the course. I'm glad that it is helpful. I will tell you this. Um, I am teaching that course, right? I have paid attention to this for a long time. I have pages of notes of things that I feel exposed on because I can hardly believe every day I fight my normalcy bias every single day. And I just say like this, I, yeah. I, I thought this through, but I always thought I knew, I knew historically that a global flu pandemic or global, you know, viral pandemic, this is the thing that throughout history has changed again and again and again, entire civilizations, you know, the plague changed history. Um, you can see cholera outbreaks, uh, the Spanish flu. Again and again and again, you can see that this changed civilizations. Entire civilizations disappear because of, of um, infectious disease outbreaks. You have smallpox outbreaks in, in the Americas, and, and entire cultures and civilizations disappear. And so I've always thought that this was um, 
this was a, a serious threat. And and because of the, yeah. the model of the threat, as I've stated publicly, I've always thought that this was the hardest thing because it's all it's all the globe all at once. It and that and especially that's the that's the risk that has always risen. That in the past it wasn't always all the globe all at once because people traveled around at a fairly moderate speed. The the rate of uh, that mm-hmm. their own feet would take them, the rate that a horse would take them, the rate that a sailboat would take them. But now as the speed of travel has increased and we went from horses to trains and trains to automobiles and then to airplanes and now people travel around at 24 hours a day, that has always been the major risk factor for the outbreak of, of infectious disease because that that speed of movement makes it possible for something to go from one area to the rest of the world all at once. Well, that's been compounded and, and had our offsetting benefits to it. You know, the information also travels and so information travels fast, which leads to a bigger risk of panic, a bigger risk of the human psychology. During the Spanish flu, you know, very rarely people knew what they knew from their neighbors and they knew what they knew from the newspapers. But now I'm tuned into the world flow of information and so is everybody else. And so this this increases the risk of, of human reaction and overreaction, human panic, et cetera, and it makes it even more acute. Now, thankfully, there are offsetting factors. We have massively improved healthcare systems. We have massively improved um, treatment systems, massively improved understanding of germs and viruses, etc. And so there are offsetting factors that make things better, but you, you you see it playing out. So the point is just simply to say, yes, I understand the uh, the situation you're in. And every day I look at it and I think, well, I always knew that this was a scenario, but I didn't know it was going to be quite this um, um, – you know, quite this difficult during your course. Yeah. Well, I <laughs> didn't expect I, it to happen during. Yeah, your exactly. And so it's one of those things where I, I keep hoping, I keep hoping every day that there'll be some cure, but I, I'm like, next time it comes, I am going to be 10 times better prepared than I am now because I don't like the, I don't like the, the impact of it, uh, day by day. I don't like the, yeah. like it. And yeah. I'm, I'm in a better situation than most people. So, all right, man, guy, thanks for calling yeah, in. I'm going to boogie on. Absolutely. I got a bunch of other, other callers to, to work with. So thank you very much. All right, we go now to looks like uh muhammad is that you welcome to the show how can i serve you today hi josh thank you yes um you know i've been to the joshua sheets university so i've taken all your courses and i so appreciate everything you've done i'm in a situation where i'm doing telemedicine so i'm uh, i have my online business right now doing telemedicine as a physician i have a few other online businesses so i'm in a good financial situation as far as income i have a good amount of cash saved up i also have real estate in the U.S. and I have a, a, a piece of property in Spain, so I could live in either one. Currently, I'm in California working in a clinic, um, and I'm debating in the long run, but also in the short short term, is it better for me to be in Spain or is it better for me to be here? I can do my business in either place. And a follow-up question, if you do have time, if not, that's fine, is whether there's an opportunity right now to invest in anything that comes to your mind. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Th- um, before I answer those um, could you give any comments with your experience and what you're seeing on the ground of things that you think I've gotten wrong or things that I've gotten right in terms of uh, just for my audience? Because, of course, we always appreciate when we can hear directly from somebody who's part of the community who has the medical knowledge. Um, can you give any comment on, on what you're seeing and, and where you think we go from here? Yeah, I mean, uh, it would it would always be more comfortable speaking to you directly without <laughs> the, your audience. But uh, I mean, I'm happy to say what what I've experienced. So, I'm uh, a family medicine physician. So I'm in a community health center working in Compton, Los Angeles. So, 
um, we have a little bit of a lower education status with patients and a little bit less access. So we are seeing a lot of people who are coming in with cold and flu symptoms because they're certainly afraid they've been turned away at the ERs or they're trying to go to the hospitals. Uh, we don't have any testing. And even if we did have testing, we, don't, uh, we can't rely on the results of the tests right now. We don't know what the specificity and sensitivity is. We don't have enough personal protective equipment to collect those specimens, which can uh, put us physicians at risk. Uh, we also have a lot of fear as far as, as far as me as a physician, um, you know, everybody said that there's this waiver, there's that law waiver, we can do telemedicine, we can do this, but nobody said that me as a physician, I'm, uh, I'm off the hook for a lawsuit. So unfortunately that hasn't come down the pipelines yet. So a lot of us physicians are afraid to diagnose, uh, a certain potential disease like this. If we see somebody with certain, uh, symptoms, we, uh, I'm not saying that people do this, but I'm saying that physicians have, uh, you know, we're careful about how we document it in the mm -hmm. chart, because if I do miss a heart attack versus a pneumonia versus a COVID infection, then uh, I'm on the hook. And right. if I do send the patient over to the ER, I'm on the hook. Um, and I, I get chewed out by the ER doctor. I get chewed out by the hospital. I get chewed out by the CEO. The CFO has given us talks at the clinic. The uh, medical officer, the uh, medical director has given us talks. So there's a lot of chaos and we're not getting enough information as physicians to know what to do how to manage these patients, how to screen the patients, and what can I say to a patient? You know, right. should I keep them at home? Should I send them to the hospital? So there's a lot of chaos for us. We're protecting ourselves. We're protecting our ass because I'm trying to protect my uh, income. Um, of course. So that's what's happening there. Yeah. But yeah, I'm well, thank you. That's, that, that's, that's enough. I've got, um, I've got private messages from other physicians that I can share uh, anonymously as well. So thank you. Um, to answer your questions, I would say um, specifically Spain versus California. It seems to me that between the two, uh, I'd probably rather be in California right now, especially for your uh, for your opportunities to generate income off of this. I think that uh, if you're going to work hard during this period, as you certainly are, that there's no reason for you not to get paid. And so there's a, probably a better opportunity for you to be able to generate income in the private market in the United States and through the telemedicine options versus the nationalized systems in Spain. Now, if that's wrong based upon your experience, then just discount that. But to me, that seems like uh, an option. You can use your geographic flexibility to go where you can help people and be well compensated for that work. That would be helpful. Um, in addition, uh, it seems to me that uh, if you are a U.S. citizen, um, you are going to have some more, a little bit more security there than you are uh, in Spain, uh, being perhaps a resident. But but but, uh, are you a citizen, uh, an EU citizen, or a Spanish citizen? Uh, I'm a, a permanent resident, a resident. of Spain, okay. so I have a visa, and I'm a citizen of the U.S. Okay, so that's good. So anyway, that's one consideration. Beyond that, though, um, I would look at just on the ground and say, where do you feel more comfortable, and where do you feel like you can serve more effectively? It might be possible if you're going to work at a clinic in Spain and also do telemedicine, perhaps that would be the most effective place for you to serve. I know you're not, at this time, just trying to figure out what's all in it for you, you're seeking to serve, uh, but I would I would look at the medical, at the medical options and, and see. Um, you're probably, hopefully it's okay in either place. Um, I don't know that, you know, the United States is a, probably a week or so behind Europe in terms of the prolifer prolifer proliferation 
of the infection, uh, or at least the the acknowledgement of the proliferation of the infection, and where we go from here, I don't know. Um, I'd be slow to get on an airplane right now, so the fact that you're in California right now, to me, it would be pretty pretty persuasive. Uh, I don't have any more insight um, than that. Uh, you could probably be useful in both places, and may you know God's wisdom and, and strength as you seek to serve in this time. As far as investment options, uh, I see that as a question of now versus later, and these are very, very different um, scenarios. At the moment, um, answering investment options is 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 hard because we don't know the extent of the we don't know the extent of anything. We're still in the situation of just simply not having good, reliable information, and thus good data analysis is very very difficult um, because there's there's so many unknowns. Now, I think we can be certain that there we can be certain that regardless of what happens with the uh, regardless of what happens with the uh, the infection, with the virus, with the actual pandemic, it has already caused incalculable incalculable economic damage. At this point in time, I am mentally preparing myself for that economic damage to continue for um, minimum months and months, and probably more like a year to 18 months. As best I can understand, it seems to me that there are two basic things that can solve the, the that can potentially solve the, um, uh, the, the, the medical problem, and only one of them is short-term. The first thing that will dramatically change the medical problem is the discovery of a very effective treatment protocol for people with coronavirus, with COVID. Um, and so I, I see people talking about that. I see physicians trying things. Um, again, all the excitement in the last few days over chlor chloroquine, and I hope I'm saying that right. But um, there's excitement over it, but I, I haven't seen, you know, Lots of people say, "Yes, let's trumpet this. We've we've got this. In it. We've got this thing licked." If some kind of extremely extremely effective therapeutic um, um, treatment is found that's effective for young people and old people alike, that could bring this whole thing the the that could bring the infection to a, a stop, and that treatment could be preventive. It could be a way of inoculating people against the impacts of the infection. And then there are enough people, I think, who would be happy if, if they knew there were a treatment. They'd say, okay, fine. I'll just go ahead and I'll get sick. I'll get infected. And um, they've, got a, they've got a good treatment for me and we'll get herd immunity quickly in that situation. And so that's the best short-term short -term case for stopping the actual infection. Now, the best long-term case is a vaccine, and but I don't see how a vaccine could be developed and or developed, tested properly, um, created and distributed in anything less than a year, and probably that's even too optimistic. Something more like 18 months would be a time frame. There are companies who right now are, are trialing vaccines, but there's so much, there's so much, such a huge difference between here versus there that to me, it just seems like only someone who's ignorant of that process would think that that's a short-term solution. And uh, and so, so I'm looking for those two things, but the vaccine is long-term. Now, 
unless a treatment is found, what we know right now is that this is a deadly disease that's incredibly infectious and is killing many. And the modeling indicates that if this disease is not contained, then the the, the death toll, what was it from the Olympia College um, this last week, you know, the, the estimated death death toll in their modeling was something like four point, you know, four, over 4 million Americans, um, something like 45 million people globally in the worst case scenario. Then they, they, they modeled different scenarios. Now, those things have, of course, have a huge margin of error. We don't know that for sure. But the only thing we know for sure absolutely works is is quarantine, is social distancing. We know that if you sit in your house and you don't go anywhere and you're not sick now and you don't contact any sick people, you're not going to get sick. And so quarantining is the quarantining and or like vaccination and or treatment is the only solution. But that comes with an incalculable economic cost. And so at this point, I'm hoping that there's a there's a therapy developed that's very effective within the next weeks and months. And of course, there are millions of doctors all around the world trying to find that. But until that's found, I don't see how this does not occur. I don't see how this doesn't continue for a minimum of a year to 18 months. Maybe they'll figure out how to do rolling lockdowns to to say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna lock down for three weeks. That minimizes the spread of infection. Then we're gonna go back to business as normal for a few weeks and then we're going to lock down again but the human the 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 cost of human lives is simply of of an un of an uncontrolled viral um outbreak is simply too high for i think any politician to say yes we're going to do that and for any intelligent rational person to be willing to to engage with and so at the moment i see this economic effect as getting deeper and longer and being on a period of of again minimum months and months and months and months um, while hoping that a treatment is developed so if that analysis is right if it's wrong tell me why it's wrong but if that analysis is right I don't see a short-term um, investment opportunity that makes any sense. And you can kind of go through almost all of the different asset classes. And, and by the way, except possibly the short-term solution would be cash, oh, but that's not an investment, or possibly gold um, because of the the stability of gold in, or the perceived stability of gold in terms of crisis. But if we look at, at um, investment opportunities, I think you know, generally we look at business. Um, we look. I, I always talk about it in terms of business. I look at it in terms of real property, um, usually real estate and or other tangible property, and then paper assets. Well, paper assets are in turmoil. Stocks are obviously in turmoil for good reason, and I don't see any reason to expect that to end anytime soon. Um, the market is going to continue to react to massive inflows of money. The market's going to continue to react to bad news, good news, et cetera. But if you actually, if you conceive of what a global lockdown, what you're seeing all around the world, a global lockdown is right now, and especially the potential cost as this virus continues to spread in areas where there's, the, you know, the, the testing in the United States is is awful. But what about the testing in Nigeria, right? What about the testing in the Congo? What about the testing in in in, in Greater India? Um, some of these, um, of course, Nigeria and India being very populated, Congo not, but I mean, w w the, the testing in these areas, it's just, it's incalculable, the cost here. And if you look at the, the best case scenario in the United States being catastrophic, the best case scenario in, in, in Nigeria or the best case in, in scenario in, in, in Darfur or the best case in scenario in, in Mombasa is, is, is just, is awful. It, it's worse than catastrophic. So, um, 
Man, that's it. Well, how 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 encouraging Joshua is today. Um, so, paper assets uh, on a global basis. Where's the where's the obvious play, right? Maybe there's a trade involved that you could do. Maybe there's a a trade in, in healthcare, something like that, and that's 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 possible. But in terms of generally speaking, I expect massive continuing levels of volatility as the as the market generally continues to come to terms with where we are and where we're going from here. I don't see how it it gets better in the short term. So I don't see an obvious paper paper play that I'm willing to 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 say, uh, or, or I'm willing to advise on. What about real property? So the obvious solution here, well, let's go to business first. So business is incredibly uncertain because with the exception of a business that you can create, right? I think that if you had the opportunity to say, I'm going to build a telemedicine business or I'm going to build something in the private market, maybe with unlicensed people who aren't physicians and figure out something there, there are opportunities in business that can serve this, this need. Um, but but for most businesses, most businesses right now are just utterly paralyzed because it's almost impossible for the vast majority of businesses to function in this environment. There are a few that can function, but most cannot. Um, and so the business thing is highly specific. So what about property? Um, real property as in real estate, land, and or um and or physical property. Well, I think the power is, of course, with some kinds of tangibles. If you were sitting on a, on a mountain of, and we can't use masks, because of course you just, you donate all those. But I mean, if you were sitting on something that we're in high demand right now, with the exception of, of the laws against it, you could, you could make money off of it. You know, that it was that story of the guy with 17,000 um, hand sanitizer bottles. He could just go out and, 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 well, when traffic was flowing, he could go stand in the road like they do in outside of the United States and, and sell them one, one off to people on the road. But there aren't real obvious plays there, especially there aren't real obvious plays that are not taken. Um, you know, guns sold out, ammunition sold out. Um, so the only obvious play with, with any kind of real property would be something like gold or, or, and or silver. And I think that there's a there's a there's an interesting argument there. Um, I'm buying more gold. Um, I think that that's probably something that that there's a that that will that could work out the gold market has not um the the price of gold has not gone through the roof um based upon current events which is really interesting uh but of course you know most people don't own gold there, there are arguments against it the the single thing that i never expected the thing that has been the most shocking to me and i'm i'm using those words accurately and carefully not that's not hyperbole but i have been legitimately shocked is i have never ever imagined a scenario in which you would see governments doing things like in california where you are forbidding evictions I never would have imagined that, and I thought I'd imagined some bad things, and that was past my imagination, and I don't know anything of what to do with that, but generally, I would have said, if, if this were a week ago before those laws started getting passed, a week ago, I would have said, well, the obvious play here is going to be buying real estate, and so my plan has been for years to stockpile cash, wait for recession, I've seen it as inevitable that recession comes. I would stockpile cash, wait for recession, and then on the backside of recession, when people start losing their houses, you start having increases in foreclosure, then I would go ahead and I would start buying real estate and I would establish a large and broad rental real estate portfolio. That's been my plan since 2015. Um, 
it took, I thought it would happen sooner. Uh, I didn't expect it to take till 2020, but that's been my plan since 2015. I was wrong on the timing. But now with some of these changes in legislation, now I don't even know what to do with that because the entire real estate market is going to be, is being turned upside down. Um, Where if landlords can't evict tenants, then why would a tenant, any tenant in their rational mind pay their rent? And if for if lenders can't foreclose on properties, then why does any borrower pay their mortgage? And so right now, I don't know what to do with that. I've looked at it, I've thought about it, and as far as I know, that's unprecedented. Maybe I just have I have been so busy, I have I haven't had the time to go and try to do some research and see if there's something I didn't know about that that maybe it's happened before and I just didn't know about it. But I consider that unprecedented, absolutely unprecedented, and I I have no idea what to do with that from an investment perspective. I've been on the phone with clients who are large real estate own large amounts of real estate. And we're just trying to figure out, okay, well, what do you do in this? And I, my answer is, I don't know. And so the only thing that I see that's 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 safe is to revert back to income, generating an income and trying to figure out how to serve people in a way that generates, generates income. Cash, US dollar has strengthened over the last... Um, the last uh, uh, week, um, but cash. Um, I go back to foreign currency currency diversification because I'm. I think the U.S. dollar is the strongest currency in the world. Probably will remain that way. But I'm nervous about having everything in U.S. dollars. And then we go back to precious metals. Uh, and so um, that's what I'm doing. And at the moment, it's not the way forward is not clear to me because of these unknowns. Uh, it's it's it's. I don't see the path because the 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 path absent a treatment of absent an effective treatment protocol is is utterly depressing. With an effective treatment protocol, then perhaps we could get to some kind of of um, solution. Um, but 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 how do I predict what that effective treatment protocol is? And so there, what I would say is, what you should do as an investor is you should rely on your deeper level of biology and and how to read kind of the medical literature and then as you see solutions or non-solutions then think about the impact of those and then try to trade based on your inside knowledge that would be my best advice at this point in time thank you josh my pleasure. Thank you for the work that you're doing. I appreciate uh, I appreciate uh, your service. All right, we go to Indiana. Welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Hi, Joshua. Um, thanks for taking my call. Uh, I, this is not the question that I called about, but when you were discussing getting cash earlier, um, I thought you gave a good explanation of why it might not become hard to get uh, cash in the near future, but you didn't really say why you think that having thousands or tens of thousands of dollars of currency on hand would be especially valuable in this time period. I'm concerned about um, banks being closed down. I'm concerned about bank holidays. I'm concerned about runs on the bank. Um, the Every single time that there is economic panic and, and financial panic, what happens is there starts to be a run on the bank. People start to go to the bank and get physical currency. Now, in today's world, it's hard to imagine because all of us are used to doing work digitally. It's a little hard to imagine it compared to the past. The world of 2020, where the vast majority of us function on digital um, digital currency, is uh, it, it's hard to imagine. Uh, but compared to uh, you know 1950, uh, when when digital currency didn't exist. 
So, uh, but I still think that people are accustomed to this idea that in a bad scenario, cash is what is needed and physical currency is what they mean. And so if it would not surprise me to wake up on, on Sunday morning or Monday morning or Tuesday morning and see lines of people lined up at ATMs if this continues at the current pace. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm three weeks wrong, right? It wouldn't surprise me to see that on Monday, and it wouldn't surprise me not to see that on Monday. It wouldn't surprise me to not to, to see that a month from now. But if that starts to happen, that creates a general contagion and a general panic. And so what do, what do government um, bureaucrats, what do they do in that situation? Um, well, the answer is they close down the banks. They shut down the banks. And they do that because they have to stop the flow of money and they have to stop the panic. And they understand that there's going to be the panic. And so they declare a bank holiday. Now, that bank holiday can vary depending on what country you're in and depending on how severe the crisis is. But the bank holiday is declared, and the government says, listen, you have FDIC insurance. There's no need for you to panic. You're insured up to $250,000 per account. We promise that these banks are going to be fine. The bankers all say, we promise um, that you're going to be completely fine. And, and they, but they stop the ability of, of people to get access to money um, in that situation, get access to physical currency. So does that work? Well, a lot of people believe that it does, and there's arguments in favor of it, of it doing it. But it certainly is not comforting when all of a sudden you see a bank holiday in your, in your state. And so that makes more people more and more want to go and, 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 and get cash. And so what else does the bank, does the, um, uh, does just do the does the government do in times of panic? Well, they start to bring in um, price controls, which just make everything worse. Right? Price gou- anti-price gouging laws are a form of price controls, and so they they bring in price controls, and that makes everything harder. Uh, they bring in. Um, they make it out. Uh, they make current. Sometimes they make currency transactions illegal, whether it's certain currencies or certain larger amounts of currency. And I think that the generalized uh, population has become relatively immune to this at this point in time. Americans, for example, have put up with and have not have not cried out about all the currency controls that have been um, in place for decades now. Uh, Americans have not been concerned about the fact that you can't do transactions bigger than ten thousand dollars in physical currency without being. Uh, um, without a currency transaction report in Europe, many parts of Europe, it's illegal. It's illegal to do trans- large transactions of currency. You can't go and do something simple like buy a car from a guy with um, with money. Thankfully, it's not illegal yet in the United States, but it is certainly illegal in um, in several parts of uh, of Europe. Um, in other countries, they they banned currency, and so the question always comes down to navigating this, and it becomes brutal because it changes day by day. In China, they have taken in the wake of the virus, they took all the all the all the currency in, um, and said they were going to reissue it, but they've moved everyone to digital payment system. Uh, India, uh, what was the thing? Let me get my facts straight here. I, I, just off the top of my head, India last year canceled. Um, uh, currency transactions, etc. So the point is that I think that, that, that there's still, with the U.S. dollar being strong, I think that the vast majority of people generally can't, uh, can't generally believe that the U.S. dollar is going to be fine, and that the vast majority of people still are happy to have cash, and especially in a system of government money, where you, you say, "Hey, I'll sell you this thing here for cash, and it doesn't show up, so I can still get my free money from the government, or I can avoid this tax, etc." I think that when you have cash, you have the ability to move in the middle of a bank close down. So if there's a bank holiday, or if there's uh, di- issues on digital digital money, or you're required to track everything, etc., then I think 
uh, currency still gives you uh, value. And so when you have currency, you have the ability to provide the needs of your family. You can go to your neighbor who who went to um, you can go to your neighbor who went to Costco a few weeks ago and bought ten cases of toilet paper and say, "Listen, man, would you sell me a case of toilet paper?" And I'm happy to pay you triple what you paid for it. And the neighbor says, "Yeah, sure, I'll do that." Um, you. The, uh, you can buy services that you need. You can purchase, uh, have people do things for you with with currency. Um, and so it's just the most useful tool in your toolbox. And it's one of the few things that you can do in a in a scenario where um, in a scenario where where there's there's uncertainty. Uh, you can often go and and use currency to get access to things that are simply not available. So I've said for years, why have I talked about? Um, stockpiling. Why have I talked about preparedness? Well, what I've said for years is money is always your most effective tool. It's always your number one tool, except in the situations where money doesn't work. So why do we save money first? Well, because saving money is your best solution to problems in your life, um, except when money doesn't work. And so what did you see happen in the toilet paper market as just a best example? Money stopped working. Um, You couldn't get toilet paper really at any price. Now, that's not actually true. You could have gotten it at some price, but you couldn't get it in the store because money stopped working for toilet paper uh, and because the supply went out. And so what's the next big thing that that happens in a bad scenario? And again, I'm I, I know this sounds nuts, and I feel like a crazy man doing it, but this is what you see throughout history, which is why you've got to be prepared in advance. Well, money, money still works um, in a situation where... Uh, okay, so... Money is your best tool to buy stuff as long as money works. We've talked about that. We've talked about stockpiling. That's why we started talking in January about about stockpiling, about preparedness, et cetera. So now there are shortages. There are shortages, and there are probably going to be increased shortages, increased rationing. Money is still your best tool to be able to surpass those shortages. If you don't have toilet paper, but you know your, your, your neighbor has a bunch of toilet paper, then you can just simply go to your neighbor and you can say, listen, neighbor, could I buy toilet paper? And you can pay a high price. But you can only do that if you have physical currency. Generally, you can, some, you know, some people accept digital currency and you got Venmo, you got PayPal, you got ways to, con- to convey money. But, but, but physical cash is still far more powerful. So physical cash gives you the opportunity to make, um, to make, to to get the stuff that your family needs in a difficult situation. So that's the phase we're at now. Now, what's the next kind of final phase if you wind up with a really bad economic crisis? Well, in a really bad economic crisis, you wind up with some co- some combination of deflation and or mass inflation and or hyperinflation. And so there are people who argue about these things. Now, I do hear me clearly. At the moment, I do not think that that is going to happen in the United States. I do think that'll probably happen in some other countries in the world, but I do not think that that's going to happen in the United States yet. But I think that it is increasingly possible, and I'm concerned about it because I see no end in sight for the reasons previously stated medically. And so the biggest problem I have is not rational analysis of, hey, this could happen. The biggest problem I have is simply my own inability to believe that, that I'm even saying that out loud. And that's a normalcy bias, which is a, a, is a flaw. It's, a, it's a, a logical error. It's a logical fallacy. And so I can't, I can't make my analysis based upon logical fallacies. So let's talk about you know, what happens if you go 
into a deflationary environment or a hyperinflationary environment. Uh, mass inflation is the least objectionable of those and probably the most likely. But in a deflationary environment, you want to have money so that you can buy stuff. And in a hyperinflationary environment, you want to have money so you can buy stuff. And so if, if all of a sudden you got into one of those situations where you had to very quickly make large purchases, you want to have the ability to do that with actual money that you can access, not money that where they say is transaction decline. That's the value of cash. And so whether that's just simply to buy food, if there are food shortages, whether that's simply by having cash so that when capital controls uh, or price controls or more rationing uh, or anti-hoarding laws or just any other kind of, of financial control or financial repression laws enacted, um, then you have the ability to work around that system. If I've got you know, $30,000 in my pocket, I can get on an airplane, I can go to another country, and I can turn that $30,000 into local currency, and I can start again. And so that's the, that's the argument for cash. It, it's the thing that, that solves problems when everybody else is, is locked down, when everybody else's accounts are frozen, when everybody else has their credit cards are frozen. Um, and we're in such a crazy scenario that, that, it's, that it's increasingly possible to see those things um, happening. And, and, and so I still think there's time. I still think there's plenty of time. I still hope that, that that's premature, but this is the time to be prepared for that next step. And so what's the cost of having cash? Well, the cost of having cash is foregone interest, right? You're not getting interest on cash anyway. And so the only costs of having cash that I see is number one, you have a security risk, so, uh, risk of theft, risk of, of, of loss, risk of fire, but you can mitigate those risks pretty well. And you have a convenience risk that you're not going to go up in today's world in the United States. You're not going to go and you're and buy, generally speaking, you're not going to go and buy a, a house for $100,000 of cash. I guess it's in theory possible, but it's not going to happen. So in that situation, if all of a sudden we say, yeah, it's time to go ahead and invest in, in real estate and I want to qualify for a mortgage in a, in a kind of a more normal world where we're trying to take advantage of normal level recessions, then you need that money in the bank so you can prove its provenance, you can prove its legal creation. Um, you have the bank trail of it. That, so that's where you need the money in the bank. And so if I, if I, you know, I'm not taking all my money out of the bank and going to cash, um, but I am concerned about not having significant amounts of cash and I'm concerned about not having, um, you know, foreign currencies, et cetera. So that, did that, did that make sense? Was that a good ex explanation or did I totally muddy the water? Uh, yeah, I think so. I, I don't disagree. I actually, I'm in my car and I literally just went to the bank and took some extra cash out because I was listening to you, Good. I guess. Um, it seems to me like I'm in probably a similar situation to the caller you were talking to earlier about that. And, you know, I don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars set aside where, you know, I can put $30,000 in cash and that's, and I understand it's not a big deal to have all my money in cash for a short period of time, but you know, I have some stockpiles of food and uh, toilet paper and stuff like that. Um, You're a rich man. <laughs> everything crashes. Yes, <laughs> everything crashes and people aren't paying their mortgages and the banks are shut down and I'm not allowed to use my debit card or my credit card to pay my electric bill. Uh, you know, a few thousand dollars would supply my family with food and toilet paper and such like beyond what we need for quite a long time. So... I guess I, I'm not really disagreeing with anything you said. I just, it seems like as a listener, I can start to feel a little bit panicked listening to you. And for those of us in the middle 
middle area where we're not going to say, oh, yes, I have lots of cash stockpiled, and, hey, here's a great deal on a $40,000 IRB. If I can hand over $100 bills, and that's, you know, no big deal to me to do that, so I'm going to take advantage. But we could have, you know, $20,000 in cash sitting at home. Uh, I just want to encourage you to maybe say, like, is there some reason that a person who has a net worth of $40,000 or $50,000 liquid assets um, I don't. I don't think we should be feeling panicked and racing out to try no, to get all of that. Definitely in not. Hundred dollar bills. And no, I, I wanted to give you the chance to yeah, clarify that. It's a, it's a fair point, and it's very difficult to me knowing that that knowing that my words are listened to by other people. I don't wish to be the person who spreads panic. There is a time to panic. The best time to panic is before it's needed so that you're prepared for it. And so, you know, let's say that let's say that you are using a chainsaw and your chainsaw slips and cuts your thigh open and um and you you you're looking down at your thigh gushing blood and you know your femoral artery is right there. You're going to die in a few minutes unless a solution is found. And so that is the time not to you know obviously this word panic because panic is is truly um Panic is truly counterproductive where you're, you're, you start, you're, your heart starts racing, your mind shuts down, your body is flooded with adrenaline. Panic is, is never a good idea. So I don't know the word to use to say this is serious and you have exactly 60 seconds to stop the problem. So in that situation, what do you do? The only hope of your, of your living in that situation is that a tourniquet is applied to your thigh in, in, in seconds, in tens of seconds, and um, a tourniquet is applied to your, your thigh in tens of seconds, and that you have qualified medical professionals there in as absolutely fast as they can be there, 60 seconds would be great. So when you look at a situation like that, you look down and you see how serious this is. You would be an idiot who should panic if you went out to use a chainsaw wearing a pair of board shorts and flip-flops without a tourniquet, right? You're stupid. You're absolutely stupid to do that. So if you're going to use a chainsaw, you think ahead and you say, number one, I'm going to make sure that I wear proper safety equipment. I'm going to wear chainsaw chaps to protect me in case my chainsaw slips. I'm going to wear steel-toed chainsaw boots. I'm going to be prepared with proper protective equipment. Well, people don't do that because it costs people don't do that because it costs, you know, hundreds of dollars to go and buy the stuff, but you're an idiot if you don't do that. Number 2, you make sure that you have a tourniquet on your person ready to go so that you can quickly reach down and if you have an accident, you can put a tourniquet on your leg and you learn how to use it. And so the time to panic is before you ever turn on the chainsaw. Now, th that panic is just simply preparation. And so I don't know how to properly with my own voice other than explain the, the difference between these things. I'm not panicked. Um, I'm not panicking. I am... I'm rested, I'm relaxed, I'm trying to think rationally and clearly, but I'm trying to observe the situations at hand, study the dangers, make appropriate uh, preparations to care for my family, and make appropriate preparations to help my listeners who've put their confidence in me without saying do something stupid. So 
that's that's the only way I know how to do it is to explain here's the situation and here's the solution. The solution to chainsaw safety is number one, hire somebody else to do it and let them be the one to to die for it. Um, number two, the solution is wear proper chaf- equip- protective equipment, use proper techniques for safety, and then number three, to have a, a tourniquet. Um, but if you look down and you don't have that stuff in place, then somebody should say, this is unwise, this is foolish. Uh, so uh, I don't know if that muddies the water, but but basically here's here's the reality we're in. Okay, the the risk of a viral pandemic has always been there. It's always been there throughout history. Viral viral infectious pandemic has changed the course of history time and time again, as previously discussed with previous examples. It is a massive risk. When we start to go into one, what you're hoping for is you're hoping to see competent reaction to that viral pandemic. That's why there is a World Health Organization. That's why every country has some kind of centers for disease control and why every country and many cities hire infectious disease specialists and why there are teams of people. That's why hospitals stockpile personal protective equipment. That's why they're prepared for that. And you hope for competence in those situations. And with competence, what you can see is that any viral infectious disease outbreak can be properly managed. Um, You can see that in Singapore right now. You can see that in South Korea. You can see that there have been competent reactions and responses to this viral um, outbreak. And so you can even see it in China. It was incompetent at first, but at the moment, it seems like they have competently responded. Now, all of us have the opportunity to respond competently to that risk. The United States government has the opportunity to respond competently to that risk. The Panamanian government has the responsibility. Every government in the world has the opportunity to respond competently. Sometimes competent response happens and sometimes competent response doesn't happen. Now let's go over to financial risks, market risks, fiscal risks, monetary risks. Every government in the world has the ability to manage its finances competently with regard to its fiscal situations. There's no requirement that a government borrow money. There's no requirement that government builds massive welfare states destined to support millions of people. There's no requirement that governments build these these huge bloated infrastructures based on borrowed money. There's no requirement by that. There are many governments in the world that run their, their finances very well. You could go to Singapore and you can see a model government, right? You can still to many countries and you can say, hey, this country doesn't borrow a lot of money. This country doesn't create bloated welfare systems. This country is, is actually profitable. They, they're competent. But you can also look around and say that there are countries that are completely incompetent. So on a fiscal level, what you have in the United States is you have complete and gross incompetence on a fiscal level. You have utter incompetence fiscally. So fiscally can go on for a while, right? That can happen. Now, what about monetarily? You could, in theory, if you are committed to the theories of, of, of Keynesianism and the way that modern policies are, are managed, you could say, we could have a competent Federal Reserve. And I think for the most part, you can have good evidence to believe that there's a fairly competent Federal Reserve. Of all of the, the people associated that I've just mentioned with regard to the, the bureaucrats handling um, centers for disease control or, or, or you know, pandemic <coughs> excuse me, pandemic infections teams um, in the United States, they've proven thus far to be generally incompetent with sparks of brightness. Fiscally, Um, The U.S. government is fiscally incompetent with no sparks of brightness whatsoever. The Federal Reserve, monetarily, 
mostly competent right now. But I get concerned about how long that competence lasts. So I'm, I think that they're competent. I don't generally believe in the underlying theory of Keynesianism. I think that the, the way that it's done is a, a, a very modern experiment that the vast majority of countries in the world have decided to engage in. And I don't think it lasts. I don't think it lasts. But I'm hoping it lasts a little bit longer. So um, I, I'm ranting, but that's the best I got for you. I'm sorry. You have another question? <laughs> Thanks. Yep. Uh, yeah, I do. I will say, I think what you're saying about panic, I don't think panic is ever good. Right. Uh, but Agreed. we always react at a appropriate speed for the urgency of the situation. And the key is to always do that in everything, every day. Right. And then um, being able to recognize when the situation changes and realize that I was chainsawing and I didn't need to act urgently. I should be slow and careful. Now I'm bleeding to death and I need to act uh, a different action much more urgently. 100% agree, and I'm sorry for using the word panic because you're exactly right. There's never a good time to panic. If by panic we mean that you know that that adrenaline pumping, got to do something, freak out. No, the time if you cut your leg with a pan chainsaw and your femoral artery is bleeding, don't panic. Call for help as fast as you can. Look around for something that can be used for um, something that can be used for. Uh, bleeding control, even as an improvised method, immediately put pressure on it and ask God to forgive your sins. Um, that's You don't panic. You respond quickly. <laughs> right. And that's always, even in non-emergencies, doing the right. best thing uh, directly and immediately is a right important life skill I'm seeking to gain. Exactly. Uh, so if you have time to pivot to a, uh, a completely non-emergency and coronavirus-related question, I have one. Mm-hmm. Um how I think that I have a, uh, for lack of a better term, I'll call it a working class mindset. Um, I've heard the term poverty consciousness that I think, I'm not sure I totally have that, but mm-hmm. um, to some extent, uh, what are your thoughts on helping to overcome that? Like I make uh, pretty good money by American averages, um, probably as much or more than anybody in my family or my in-laws has made makes or ever made um but not you know it's about eighty thousand dollars a year and so i think that i am sort of mentally um i guess stuck would be the right word in moving beyond that and thinking uh like a non-working class wealthier person if that makes sense it does i love the question um I've got one more caller on the line since we spent so much time on your first one and it's just hard for me to pivot from kind of these serious topics, so these these urgent topics to that, (laughs) which is very important. Do me a favor, call in next week um, and I'll try to remember to put you first in the queue and let's start with that because I'd love to to start next week's Q&A show with that question. Fair enough? Absolutely. Awesome. Thank you very much, Thanks for calling in. All right, final call of the day. We go to Illinois. Welcome to the show. How can I serve you today? Hi, Joshua. This is Sean. Can you hear me? Yes, sir. Go ahead, Sean. Great. Well, uh, first and foremost, thanks for all of your work on this topic. Uh, a few weeks back, you said, like, now is the time to do things before panic sets in and um, acted appropriately. So I appreciate your thoughts there. Um, one of the things I'm thinking about moving forward with regards to paper assets, and I apologize if this question has been asked like, mm-hmm. the first few minutes of the call. Um, you know, I, I don't totally ascribe to the Dave Ramsey mindset, but I do think, I always hear him talking about, you know, growth funds and income international, all that jazz. Um, I wondered if you had any resources as to the best way to identify uh, good growth funds, whether it be books or articles, um, obviously, specifically 
growth stocks or just those that don't really pay dividends. I wondered if um, you just shed some light on, you know, more aggressive uh, investing approach as we, I think, you know, those opportunities are going to be there. Sure. Um, so the thing that's always been weird. So does Dave Ramsey, to your knowledge, does he still recommend when he talks about mutual fund investing? He used to say his recommended portfolio is that you put together a portfolio of growth, growth and in income, aggressive growth and in international, and basically that you divide it 25% between each of those or something like that. Is that still the language that he uses currently to, the, to your knowledge? That's correct. And I'm not, it's definitely still current. Um, I'm not necessarily looking to follow that exactly, mm-hmm. but I definitely think there's some efficacy to growth stocks. Okay. So this has always been something that I've never understood why he uses those words. Because if you go to any non, you know, Dave Ramsey ELP, and you say, I want to buy some growth, I want to buy some growth and in income, I want to buy some aggressive growth, and I want to buy some international. With the exception of international, um, those just simply aren't really categories that are used, generally speaking, in the the um, the mutual fund industry. Um, it's not that they they do make sense to some degree, but they're not the way that mutual fund portfolios are usually constructed. Usually, the way that you, mutual fund portfolios are constructed, the much more common classification of mutual funds is you know, large cap, mid cap, um, which stands for capitalization, the size of the fund, small cap, um, et cetera. And so it's kind of weird. You know, When I was a financial advisor, I used to think, how would I create a portfolio that matched this model fund? Because it just not, it's not language that's really used um, in, in the market out there at, at broad. Now, if you start reading mutual fund prospectuses, you do find that the mutual fund prospectus is very clear about the investment objectives of the fund. So you'll see um, you'll see mutual you'll see prospectus language that says this fund pursues investments in companies that have the you know a significant potential for growth. Or you'll say you'll see this fund invests in in uh, mutual funds that have a uh, mutual funds that. Um, my legal prospectus language is failing me that that pursue stability of value with good dividend payouts right these are the kinds of things that are that are um uh that are used and so the most so so back to kind of though his four categories the thing that is is the most useful is the difference between growth versus income. And what that basically comes down to is, are you trying to find companies that are pursuing the growth of their company and you're hoping to make your uh, investment largely through something like capital gains versus are you trying to find companies that will pay you a stable income? And so a, a balance here would be, on the one hand, you would have a company like Apple Computer that is seeking to dominate the computer marketplace and they're not trying to pay out dividends they're trying to grow their market share and so somebody who invests in shares of apple computer is going for the growth of those those shares it's a capital gain investment goal uh, and so that's that's a that's a growth uh, oriented uh, investment that's different than investing in your local utility company that has a you know 70% market share in that local value there's not it's hard to conceive of how that company grows a whole lot but they pay a nice dividend and so that's an income oriented investment where what you're looking for is that dividend or that other blue chip company that that pays dividends those are the kinds of of 
That's kind of what he's growing, going for. Now, when you get to it and you say, okay, what's the difference between a growth and an aggressive growth? Well, that's a really hard difference to articulate. Basically, usually, if you are going to try to put that into more normal language, an aggressive growth fund uh, would be the kind of fund that is pursuing smaller companies that have the potential to grow a whole lot more at least it's usually considered that way. So you might look and say, um, I mean, Coca-Cola is not considered a, a, a necessarily a growth company. I'm just trying to think of a, a brand where you would say, this is a mature company in a mature market. And so we want to grow, but that's different than saying we're going to take a speculative, um, make a more of a speculative investment on a promising uh, drug manufacturer. Right? We want aggressive growth because we want this drug manufacturer to develop the next um you know, the, the cure for COVID-19 and sell it all around the world or, or something like that. Um, so the key thing is just simply, these are weird. His categories are really weird and they don't, they don't, that's why it's hard to go to the marketplace and say, I'm going to figure out how to buy these funds. You can't really do it. Now you could sit down with, I'm sure one of his endorsed local providers and his referral system that he maintains, and they would sit down and they would show you a portfolio of mutual funds, and they would say this is an aggressive growth fund, and this is a a growth fund, and and that's not it's not wrong, it's just weird, and so here would be what I would say: go to a big mutual fund company that does active investing, because Dave is is usually, uh, as far as I'm aware, someone can correct me if I'm wrong, but Dave is usually either at least okay with or a proponent of active mutual fund investing, last I heard. And so go to a company like American Funds, uh, right? Big, big head, big, big name in the mutual fund space, in the active space, and start downloading their their perspectives, their, their prospectuses for their funds. And you have, and what you'll see is that they will have their, um, they will have their funds listed in this category. So download the prospectus for the Investment Company of America, right? One of their fam- most famous and oldest funds. And just read the prospectus. Read the Start with the, the sales literature, but then read the prospectus. And you'll start to see how the prospectus lays out very carefully what the investment aims of this fund are. And then grab one of their international funds and get an idea of what they're doing. And that will start to give you the education that you need to think about what your personal what your personal goals are. Now, when you go back into talking with a financial advisor, you're going to get, and you ask for a portfolio recommendation, you're going to get a portfolio recommendation that says, we think that you should have 32% of your uh, investment in large cap mutual funds. We think that you should have, um, you know, 15% 15% in mid cap, and we think you should have 10% in, in small cap, uh, 5% in micro cap, 10% in real estate, 5% in you know precious metals, whatever. I lost track of the numbers, but they'll give you that based and then X number of percent in bonds based upon this risk to- profile questionnaire. And then within that, within that portfolio, we're going to take this large cap and we're going to diversify it into uh, growth funds versus incomes, et cetera. And they'll give you basically a standard boilerplate portfolio. Um, but after you've read some prospectuses and, and sales literature, I think you'll you'll understand those terms a little better that's where i would start okay that's very helpful thank you my pleasure that's it for the callers on today's show let's see i had a couple people hang up and looks like they didn't come back all right that's it for the callers on today's show um 
man, I hope I've done a good job uh, with my tone. I hope that I've been clear. Uh, forgive me if if I didn't. Um, I think that the the conversation we had there about panic is appropriate. Uh, we use the word panic and try to use it in different phases, but if you actually mean genuine panic, no, genuine panic is 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 is. I can't think of a scenario when genuine panic is is actually useful. You just want to act when you see a risk. Um, I still wrestle. I said this publicly before. I still wrestle with how hard it is to say some of these things in public, knowing that if history is in any indication, if history is in any is any indication, at least in the United States, I'm probably overreacting. Right? There's this generalized idea that hey, things are going to be okay, and and generally they often have been. Often, not always. If we go to a global perspective, then. Um, you know, they're, they're, it's not always, it hasn't always been okay. And so I really hope I'm overreacting and I'm acutely conscious of saying these things out loud in public because what happens if I am overreacting, I've overreacted on the record. And when we go back to business as usual, I've established myself as, as a, um, you know, as, as a, an overreactor or, you know, and, and, and the sky is falling, right? Um, I hate that. Um, but when I started this show, I promised myself that I would. Uh, I knew that I, I can't. Um, I can't hope to not offend people. I can't hope to be right in everything. Uh, I, I, I'm sure that I'm wrong, and I try to acknowledge when I'm wrong. But for me to give, when I gave myself the permission to speak publicly, I made the commitment that I would be honest, and that if I was wrong, I would simply correct it. And so, what I'm seeking to do is to be honest. And if I can find, if I'm, if, you, if I'm proven to be wrong and or if I can, somebody can show me where I'm wrong, I'll, I'll correct it uh, and without problem. I, I think it's stupid to ever expect yourself to get everything perfect. Um, nobody, nobody does that. And so I'm seeking to be honest. But I, I think I've done a pretty clear job of laying out the, the specific risk. Um, the specific risk is the, the, viral infection. I think I've laid out pretty clearly and, and and rationally shared with you why that risk is so significant. Um that um and, and where the off ramp is, right? The off ramp to this viral outbreak is a miracle uh, a sorry, be a, an effective treatment protocol which thus far is unproven we're hoping that it's developed quickly but thus far it is unproven uh, there's no very effective treatment protocol uh, that specifically attacks this particular virus right other than standard treatment protocols try to give the body the the support that it needs ventilator support etc to fight through it um, I am receiving daily very serious, um, personal messages from people in the medical community, people with insight. And by the way, I would solicit those. Um, I try to I try to listen carefully and then just simply um, open to things. But um, but I uh, I see I see risk um, happening. And the med so the medical risk is the the medical stuff is the easiest to see because if you see a treatment being developed, become more optimistic. To the extent that you don't see a treatment developed, expect this policy of, of 
social distancing at the, at the, at the easiest answer. Long-term you know, social isolation, et cetera, these lockdowns. Expect this to be the tool of choice because government officials have no other tool. That's the, that's the key. Imagine yourself as the director of, of, of public policy for your country of residence. What other tool do you have when you know that if you have a large population, millions of people are going to die from this infection? This infection is deadly. It is not just the flu. And if it gets out of hand, it becomes even more deadly because it completely overwhelms the hospital system and all of the medical resources. It is not the flu. It is deadly. So now imagine you're looking at that and you know that if you don't take action, I'm going to use millions because of the population of the United States. If you know that you don't take action, it's very likely that millions of people will die. You know that if you do take action, millions of people will will be hurt economically, deeply hurt economically. Those are your two choices. You're on the horns of a dilemma. If you do nothing, millions of people will die. If you take action that you know is effective, it buys you time to find a solution. It buys you time to find a therapeutic cure. It buys you time to develop a vaccine. It buys you time to not have millions of people dying within a period of months. That's how fast this this infection would spread. It buys you time, but it comes with an economic cost. So why would you not buy time? I would. Now, what, what other choice is there? That's the only morally right choice is to say, we have to do this because it buys time. Now, you know that it comes with a huge economic cost, but the economic cost is an easier price to have on your conscience than the moral cost. If you were the, the emperor of your country and you looked down and you said, I'm the emperor and I know that if I take this action, I'll lose millions and millions of people, but we'll all... We won't all be rich, but we'll all have sort of kind of have some money and we'll keep economic activity going. But if I take this other action and I shut everything down, we'll save millions of lives, but we, we, we might be headed for utter financial ruin. Which of those choices would you make? What, which of those con- choices do you want on your conscience when you stand before your maker and say, this was the choice that I, that I made? What, which of those, con- when you're grilled for the rest of your life, you were emperor of the country, you were emperor of the world, and what choice did you make? Do you want to say, I tried to save lives and it came with an economic catastrophe and I overreacted, but at least we're all still alive because the data indicated that it was going to be really bad? Or do you want to say, yeah, well, we don't really care that much about lives. We just wanted everyone to stay rich. There is no other choice. So now put yourself back in that that you're still emperor of the world or emperor of your country. You've got to make this choice. What do you do? Well, you know that the single biggest risk is the, the, is the virus, okay? You know that the other big risk is the human panic, um, that, that if humans start panicking, everything falls apart. And then you know that the financial risks are very high, but you hope that with time you can deal with those. You can give money away. You can change laws. You can make it illegal to evict people. You can adjust bankruptcy laws. You can you can um, capitalize. You can nationalize all the debt away. Right? If we could just forgive all the student loans, then why can't we just forgive all the debt? Right? Why not? If if and you have prominent politicians who are making their entire political campaign saying we're just going to forgive student loans. Well, my question is, if we can forgive student loans, then why can't we forgive credit card debt? And why can't we forgive? Um, uh, mortgage debt 
And why can't we forgive business debt? Why not? If it's good to forgive student loans, to free up um, you know, students to, to be able to, to make it in America instead of being overburdened by their student loans, then why isn't it a good thing to go ahead and free up uh, free up all the all the all the homeowners? After all, just think of how the economy would boom if you didn't have to pay a mortgage right now. And if that's a good idea, then why not free up the businesses? Because if the businesses are servicing their debt, then that just is really hard for them. So let's just forgive everything. Right? This is the economic situ- system that you're in. So the, back to your emperor of the world. You're, you're desperately hoping to buy time. You're desperately hoping that if you bring down quarantines, if you say, that's it, we're shutting things down, at least you have some time to possibly deal with the economic outfall of that. Right? At least you have some time for a new therapy to be proven, a new drug to be tried, a new machine to be developed. Somehow you have the time to turn you know, all Tesla manufacturers into ventilator manufacturers and save millions of lives because now we have enough ventilators. You're trying to buy time. So you're killing the economy to try to buy time to save human lives, which is the right decision. That's the morally correct decision in that situation. And it's going to be incredibly politically costly because if it works, as it can, as it is it will, I hope, is it will, what will happen is that you will have a few thousands or tens of thousands of deaths instead of millions. And everybody will tell you that you were an idiot because you killed the economy to save millions of lives, but you didn't, uh, but millions of people didn't die and it was a complete overreaction. But at least you'll go to your grave as emperor of the country. You'll go to your grave knowing that you did the right thing with the information that you had. But what's the economic risk? Well, the economic risk is unknown. Now, is it possible there's a perfect dance? Is it possible that the government can, can, can magically do all these things? Sure. Sure. There were a lot of people that predicted the end of the world in 2008. If we give away you know, trillions of dollars in bailouts, it's all going to fall apart. Well, it didn't. So there's a good chance it doesn't now. And man, I hope that's right. But on the other hand, you should see that there are some fundamental rules in the world. There are some fundamental laws. But those laws depend on human psychology. If you were to go back to 1950 and you were to go to an economist and you were going to say, listen, you know what we could do? We could just end the gold standard and the... um, uh, we could just, you know, get rid of the, the the connection of the dollar to gold, and it'd be great. Um, and you know what? It'll never fall apart. You would have had everyone say, "Are you crazy?" No, of course we can't do that. Except some people said you could. So then it happened, right? You end the connection to gold, right? Now you have complete and total ability with the government, completely unconstrained by any connection to a physical substance, which allows politicians to say. Um, politicians to say, uh, well, you know what? We can we can give you money. We can forgive this. We can nationalize this. We can give that away here. We can <clears throat> you know, take this industry over. We can spend more. And those politicians come to power. And other people look around and say, you know what? The way to get come to power is to say, vote for me. I'll forgive all your student loans. And it works. And you go through an entire generation. And you had all the doomsdayers, all the doomsayers and doomsdayers say, you know, saying, well, it, the government might one day own a trillion do- owe a trillion dollars of debt, and that'll be a catastrophe. And then you get past a trillion dollars of debt, and it's not a catastrophe. Well, maybe it'd be ten trillion, and it's not a catastrophe, and nothing falls apart. And so what happens is this: this feeds this idea. There's no limit. There's no limit. 
Well, I ask you the question, what do you believe? Do you believe there's a limit or there's no limit? The answer to that question is probably going to make it your, your, your next course of action obvious. I don't know what the limit is. And man, I hope that limit isn't reached this year. I have, 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 have I told my wife, I mean, I can't get any more honest than, than what I said. I've told my wife, I said, listen, I think that within our lifetime, um, I think within our lifetime, we're going to see massive change. And my best estimates have always been at some point in the coming decades, notice all the room I give myself, at some point in all the coming decades, this financial and economic system, it has to come apart. Now, what I'm hoping is that it comes apart very slowly and that it comes apart with room to to unravel. And, and, and so you can have some bankruptcies here. You can have some changes there. Just like when you solve government finances, how do you do it? Well, you do it in bankruptcy, right? But that bankruptcy ideally is a whole lot of little bankruptcies. Uh, okay, we're going to means test social security. So if you have more than $300,000, you're no longer getting, or a million dollars, you're no longer getting social security. And then three years later, well, that was too much. So if you have more than $500,000, you're no longer getting social security. Or, um, if you uh, have this amount of income coming in, now you have to pay more money for Medicare, or we're going to tighten this. And when you do things little by little, incrementally, then you can soften the pain, right? If you elected Joshua emperor of the world, I and, and, and you know that Joshua would like to end all that stuff, theoretically, right? But Joshua as emperor of the world would never come in and say, let's, let's cut it. Let's just cut it all right now. That is awful. It's terrible. Any parent in the world knows you don't do that to your children, Right, the worst thing in the world that you do as a parent is if you ever go in and your children are playing happily at the park and you say, and you walk in and you say, children, stop right now and go get in the car. Your children melt down, right? And so you learn as a parent, one of the first lessons you learn, you don't do that. You set expectations for your children. You set expectations and you say, listen, at this time, um, we're going to go. And then I always give a five-minute warning, Right. And I, I want them to respond properly no matter what. If I say, stop playing, get in the car, I'd like to hear a chorus of yes, sir, daddies. And my perfect, obedient little children trot happily with good attitudes to the car. <laughs> I'd like that. Uh, we're not there. Maybe someday we will. Who knows? Um, that's the goal. But of course, we, we never get that. So what do I do? So I give warnings and I say, okay, five minutes. And I set expectations in advance of here's what's going to happen. That's effective leadership as you do your best to set expectations. Now, if it's an emergency and the children are going to get mowed down by an incoming asteroid, I'm going to say, go to the car. And when they start crying, I'm going to yell, go now. And probably the fact that I'm yelling is going to spur them to action. I don't, I don't yell. Um, and they're going to be so scared that they're going to just run. But that's what's required. And so you, what you look for and you hope for is incremental change over time. And so what I have, have hoped for is long is incremental bankruptcy, incremental adjustments. That's been the idea, okay? But that doesn't ca- account for a, a genuinely serious global viral infection. That doesn't account for the possibility of going from 3% unemployment one week to three weeks later, uh, you know, twenty percent unemployment. That's a shock. That is insane, insane. That is that is unprecedented in human history. And so, when something like that is unprecedented, it has unprecedented results. Now, 
we all hope that you can you can soften the landing, right? Maybe the government can soften the landing and give $2,000 away to everybody. Maybe the government can bail out all these people and whatnot. I sure hope so, right? Because I want to live in that world. I do not want to live in, in doomsday world. I don't like it. It stinks. I hope it's, it's that way. But at the end of the day, I still have a responsibility to my family, my wife, my children, my extended family. I still have a responsibility to my neighbors. I still have a responsibility to you to try to find your best path through it. And you don't get to choose whether you live in the roaring 90s or whether you live in the plague-ridden 20s. What you have to do is you have to respond to the evidence that you see. That's all I got. I will be thrilled if I'm wrong, but that's what I see. Watch the news carefully. Take prudent precautions in your own life. Um, consider what you can do day by day. Uh, do not panic, but respond to the things that you see. In the worst, you know, if, if you're wrong and you've responded, you've thought it through in your head, if you've taken certain actions, if you're wrong, there might be a small price to pay for that. I think I've done, a, in the examples that I've given, I think I've tried to give fairly prudent examples. Um, you know, if you bought food, okay, worst case is you eat it or you give it away to somebody who needs food. Worst case is you feed it to your chickens, right? I'm about to go, um, when I close this show down, I'm about to go buy more food. Worst case scenario is I feed it to the chickens and I, and I, it gets used up, right? It's not a big, it's not a big financial cost to me in in um, in terms of my overall financial picture, um, but it helps me sleep better, and it's insurance. And so I'm when I go here, I'm going to go get more money out of the bank. What's the cost? It's just insurance. The biggest cost is maybe I'm sparked a financial panic here. I sure hope not. But with the pace of change right now. The things that I never, I never would have imagined. If that's not true, I would never have believed three weeks ago that I would record the show that I just have because of the risk uh, to me um, professionally. I would never have believed it. I could imagine it because I've imagined the scenarios and I've, I've, I've done courses on this stuff for a long time. I've thought about the stuff for a long time, but I never would have believed it. Well, you just heard it. Thank you. Um, may you have a good. Um, weekend. Um, try to take all the good that you can out of this stuff. Um, if you respond to circumstances early, then you can get good, um, you can get good, uh, growth out of it. You can get good, good, good benefits out of it. I know that this is a sober show. I know this is a sober tone. Um, I remain generally optimistic. One of the things that you see is in human ingenuity is you see opportunities, even in a worst case scenario. Let's say that everybody goes bankrupt. All right. One of the things that happens is in, in the same way that when a fire sweeps through a forest, it leads to new and fresh growth. When you have massive times of financial panic, there's a cost to it. People die. Genuinely, and I'm not being hyperbolic. People die. But there also is, in the wake of it, new opportunities. If you've ever worked with somebody who has um, gone through bankruptcy, bankruptcy gives relief to people in a way that is 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 powerful. Bankruptcy can also give relief to governments. Bankruptcy can give relief to to 
all kinds of things. Um, now, those things can be painful, but bankruptcy can give new relief. And so just the, the metaphor of a forest fire is an appropriate thing to think about. The forest fire looks like a, an awful thing. And if you're standing in it and it's coming up the hill and you're about to die, it is an awful thing. But the forest fire also gets rid of all the old dead wood, gets rid of all of the old um, gets rid of all, all the old dead wood. It, it sparks new life. It opens up the canopy. It allows the forest to regenerate itself. And that's what even happens with governments. When you study all the governments that have gone bankrupt and have defaulted on their debt, it gives new ability. It gives new life. And so if that's the United States, I, again, I, I still think it's premature. I don't think we're there. I, don't, I do not believe that. I don't think that. But um, trying to stay ahead of, uh, uh, at least a few weeks ahead of the, of the curve, if that's the United States... Okay, if you're prepared to feed your family, if you're prepared to unite with your neighbors, you're prepared to do that, it can be the kind of thing that is, is, leads to opportunities on all sides. So there's no reason to be, there's reason to be optimistic. It's interesting, this morning, um, Carl Richards, who I really like, he's been on the show, he wrote the one-page financial plan, he's a financial advisor, he's most famous at this point for being the New York Times sketch guy, where he writes all these sketches about, um, you know, he's so good at just taking a concept, and Carl is committed, deeply committed, which I appreciate, as I am as well, to being a voice of positivity in a difficult, um, in a difficult time. And so this morning, Carl wrote, a, wrote a, a tweet, he said, I have no idea how, I have no idea when, but listen to me, my friends, things will get better. Now, that's very true, right? Wouldn't you agree? If you're older than eight, you know that life gets better. It gets worse, it gets better. Life is filled with cycles. And so Carl says, I have no idea how, I have no idea when, but listen to me, my friend, things will get better. I love that. I responded, and I said, sure, but they can also get far, far worse for a very long time before they get better. Now, I'm, that's not quite as fun and as happy, um, but it also happens to be true because if you're over the age of eight, you've probably also noticed that in your life, things can get far, far worse for a very long time before they get better. And I don't wanna be an optimist who just simply always believes that, hey, everything is gonna be great. That's stupid. I also don't wanna be a pessimist who just believes everything is gonna be bad. That's stupid. I want to be a realist who looks at the situations at hand, who looks at the um, who looks at the um, the opportunities, and says, "I'm going to facing these opportunities. I'm going to facing these realities. I'm going to behave in the appropriate way, given the risk." The optimist. Um, the forest fire is coming up the California Canyon during during fire season. You've gotten a notice on the news and a, 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 an emergency alert on your smartphone. The optimist looks at that fire and says, that fire is not going to come through my house. I'm just going to stay here and believe the best. I'm going to think positive thoughts in the face of that forest fire. The pessimist looks at the fire and says, I've just got to sit here because that fire is coming so fast I can't get away. So I'm just going to sit here and die. The realist looks at the fire, looks at their car, and says, I don't know if I can make it or not, but I am getting out of here if I possibly can, and goes as fast as they can to the car and runs. 
And then the realist adjusts along the way. If they realize they can't outrun it, they look desperately to figure out, is there a way that I can survive this thing? Is there a body of water that I can throw myself into? And is there a way that I can survive the deprivation of oxygen? Or is there a way, what can I do along the way? That's realism. So optimism and pessimism are both um, intellectually stupid. Forgive the hyperbole. I just don't know a better word. They're intellectually stupid. Take the realistic path. Take a firm look at the world. Take a firm grasp on reality as best you can. Listen to multiple voices. Ask people to defend their arguments. Give you the reasons why. And then look at your life and take whatever actions you believe are appropriate in light of that. That's the best I got for you. Have a good weekend. I look forward to speaking to you next week.